Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. We're going medieval today. Alina, tell us why. We've got with us Janelle Fontaine, who's a medievalist and a past and present fellow at the Institute for Historical Research. Her speciality is slavery in the medieval period, and that is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome, Janelle. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this because slavery, uh, we instantly, I mean, we associate it with the ancient period and obviously we all talk about the 18th, 19th centuries, but this is something that doesn't really get a look in, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, it's an up and coming topic amongst medievalists, but it hasn't really broken out of that yet. I think the biggest kind of exposure that it's gotten has been in shows like um, The Last Kingdom and Vikings. They portray a, a sort of a form of slavery. But other than that, that's kind of people's only introduction to the subject. So what does medieval slavery look like? So slavery in the Middle Ages was just one of a number of forms of unfreedom, which kind of comprised varying levels of oppression. So what this unfreedom looked like, whether you were a self-sufficient tenant or entirely dependent on your lord, or whether you had the right to reside in one place, or whether you could be bought and sold like chattel, actually varied a lot in practice, and even down to a local or individual level. So what we call medieval slavery was actually a somewhat flexible strategy of oppression, which in many ways was very different from the idea of slavery that we're most familiar with. Um, so that said, like for the most oppressed people, chattel slaves, there was a lot of similarity there too. Um, they could be bought and sold as property. They had little to no legal rights. They were you know, brutalized, abused, negatively stereotyped. Um, so most of what I'll talk about with you guys will be uh, the fa- this far end of this kind of unfree spectrum Alex mentioned earlier that uh, we think about Roman slavery and we think about uh, the 17th, 18th centuries. So going back to Roman slavery, how was it different? So Roman slavery was actually like an extremely diverse institution. You had wealthy people owning hundreds of slaves who maintained their households. They did most of the crop cultivation and slave labor as a result could be extremely specialized with you know, different people doing the serving, cooking, working in your bathhouse, etc. Um, but after the Western Roman Empire fell, economies kind of 
shrank. And so over time, we stopped seeing slave ownership on this scale. Um, it just wasn't feasible and it wasn't really necessary to kind of feed the empire. Uh, so Roman slavery also kind of operated on an industrial scale sometimes, which included workshops uh, run by slaves or uh, deadly mining operations. And so medieval landowners could still own vast numbers of slaves spread across numerous landholding, but we don't really get any of the exploitation like chain gangs or scores of extremely specialized unfree laborers like you do in the Roman period. Um, medieval slavery also wasn't the, the crooks of the economy. Um, the Roman Empire, you can say, had something called a, a slave mode of production, which is essentially everything is produced by slaves. Slave labor is what drives the economy. And that really doesn't exist in the Middle Ages. You see slavery in lots of different places and you see slaves doing lots of different things, but it's not essential for the entire socioeconomic structure. How diverse is it from country to country in the medieval period? So you get a lot of variation uh, by region, sort of, but within that, it's not hugely diverse. So like in Western Europe, Northern Europe, um, it's not very diverse at all. Um, it's mostly agricultural, um, enslaved men doing tasks such as plowing and herding, and women typically performing things like domestic chores, cooking, dairying, um, while also simultaneously being sexually exploited. And in but in urban areas, around the, especially around the Mediterranean, um, slaves worked as domestic servants. And you get slaves everywhere who could be very skilled craftspeople. So from 10th century England, there's examples of enslaved weavers and seamstresses and even one goldsmith. Um, but under places like under the Islamic Caliphate, uh, which included much of Iberia as well as parts of North Africa and the mm -hmm. Middle East, um, slave soldiers were highly valued for their lack of conflicted loyalties and actually enslaved eunuchs could rise to positions of power like guards and administrators within the government. I want to throw a question in here. Um, how common were eunuchs at this time? Um, well, that depends on where you are. Um, they were a thing in the Byzantine Empire, not as slaves. Um, I can't really comment much on that because I don't know a huge amount about it. Um, and in the Islamic Caliphate, they were fairly common as administrators because uh, when you have a harem consisting of hundreds, thousands of women and children, you need people who can protect, guard, and care for those people who also aren't uh, considered a sexual threat. So eunuchs were perceived as ideal for these kind of positions because um, they were you know, either genderless or a third gender. Um, they weren't seen as threatening men. And so they could work in the harem where um, other men could not. I have to ask, what, what are people's attitudes towards slavery in the medieval period? And are there any countries that outlawed it quite early? Well, the thing is, um, 
there's really you don't really get anything like what we think of as an abolitionist movement like you get in say the 19th century um most people were totally fine with slavery and actually no one really seeks to outlaw slavery as an institution uh it was very acceptable within contemporary religious ideology so christian christian writers uh, tended to think that people were slaves because god had seen fit to make them that way and so mm-hmm. they should just be happy to be good obedient servants um where you do see a little bit of tension is actually with regard to methods of enslavement and slave trading and so you get a lot of laws and canons which were kind of ecclesiastical guidelines which were designed to protect certain people from being enslaved or sold to quote unquote the wrong people um rather than prevent these activities altogether so for example in christian contexts laws sought to prevent the sale of christians to non-christians which could be pagans jews or muslims depending on the context and um kings and some ecclesiastics like bishops also sought to specify when people could be enslaved for crimes and like in what circumstances they were allowed to sell themselves into slavery that's really really specific it is um and it's really telling that you don't get people who are opposed to the institution of slavery they're opposed to the way slavery is deployed and who can be impacted by these things so um to you know cite something from england again you get um archbishop wolfstan of york uh he's bishop in the early 11th century and he is furious about this idea that the viking warfare has so upset the dynamic and the social order that there's room for slaves to run away to the vikings and come back and uh you know fight against their lords and their lords would have to pay them compensation and you get and he's furious about christians being sold to what he calls the heathen um because then they could become heathens too and so it's these are the things that really upset medieval people and not so much the institution of slavery itself what is the difference between serfdom and slavery oh that's actually a really <laughs> difficult question to answer um so as i mentioned at the beginning you kind of get this spectrum of unfreedom in the middle ages and mm-hmm. one way you can think about it is that chattel slavery is sort of on one end of the spectrum as the most oppressed group of people and that serfdom could be on the other end where you have um conditional access to certain rights like a plot of land um in exchange for labor obligations um but the problem with kind of visualizing it visualizing it like this is that serfdom as sort of a juridical status or as like a socioeconomic tool didn't really exist until after slavery stopped existing mm-hmm. um so it's kind of just thinking of these things as variant forms of unfreedom and uh so you know while you have people being bought and sold in markets you've also got people who are unfree who are able to negotiate with landlords for certain rights and dues and you don't really get 
monolithic categories of slavery versus unfreedom or Mm -hmm. slavery versus freedom, sorry, like you do in, you know, the United States, Um, but rather kind of two extremes with a range of possibilities in between. So who were these slaves? So um, medieval slavery wasn't really dictated by things like skin color, like it is um, in transatlantic slavery, which is what most of us are familiar with. Um, And early medieval slavery also wasn't really dictated by religion. Um, That doesn't come in until much later. So really uh, in the early Middle Ages, and even to some extent in the later Middle Ages, anyone could become a slave, um, literally anyone. Um, So in particular places, though, you get vocabulary which links particular ethnic groups to slavery which suggests that sometimes that slaves were sometimes frequently sourced from a particular group of people so like in 7th century Wessex in England Mm. the word whale um, which could mean a foreigner also comes to simultaneously mean Welsh and slave Um, And actually our word slave, um, which is similar to the the word in most European languages, actually derives from the Latin word sclavus, which in the Middle Ages meant a Slav. So there's a lot about a debate about when the shift occurs, um, certainly by the 13th century. um, But trading Slavic slaves around the Mediterranean was actually a really big business by the 10th century. Um, Ah, I was going to say Slavs. (laughs) You've got one sitting right here. (laughs) Yeah, but I think like it's important to note that slavery wasn't exclusively tied to these groups, even when you do have these words for an ethnic group becoming synonymous with slavery. Um, Really, anyone could end up as a slave from inside or outside a society. Um, And in the later Middle Ages, when things nominally become based on religion, Um, supposedly Christians couldn't own fellow Christians and Muslims couldn't own fellow Muslims. But obviously not everyone adheres to these definitions. So there's a lot of loopholes that were exploited, like Catholics in Italy often got away with owning Orthodox Christians um, because they weren't, you know, quote unquote, official Christians. And (laughs) you get Christians and Muslims who are sometimes willfully ignoring their slaves' claims to be co-religionists. Um, So say someone from the Black Sea is captured and they are sold as a slave in Italy and they go to their owner and they're like, well, I'm actually a Christian. You can't be owning me. And their owner goes, "Mm, but are you really? Because someone on your paperwork has said that you're a pagan. So I'm just going to go by that. And so you actually get cases where slaves are bringing their owners to court, um, suing for their freedom for because they've been wrongfully enslaved as a co-religionist. So let's talk about, you mentioned criminal offences. How then, if it's so open um, and not just related to skin colour and and geographical, how do people become slaves? Well, so there were actually quite a lot of different ways that you could be enslaved. And so um, people who committed certain crimes could be punished with enslavement, so penal enslavement. You could be enslaved for theft in a lot of places. 
um, in the Czech lands, there's some evidence that you could be enslaved for being a domestic abuser. Um, people could also sell themselves or their children into slavery. And this probably seems quite strange to a lot of us. Um, but during times of famine or particular hardship, entering into slavery, sort of forfeiting your legal free rights, would have been a means of securing food and shelter and your survival. And so medieval authors usually saw this as something that's especially to be pitied. It's a sign of the times when people have to sell themselves or their children into slavery. Um, there's also the potential for debt slavery. Um, and you get the children of slaves were normally slaves by birth. They inherited slave status. And so from outside of society, people could be kidnapped and sold into slavery. Um, the most famous example of this is probably St. Patrick. Yes, the St. Patrick. Mm. Um, he ends up in Ireland in the first place because he's actually kidnapped from his home in Britain as a boy by pirates in the fifth century. And then he's sold in Ireland and he spends six or seven years herding livestock before he manages to escape and go become a bishop. Um, Warfare was also a major method of enslavement. So when warriors went to fight, like the goal was usually killing all of the fighting men on the other side and then capturing the women and children. And so this is probably how we end up with the Welsh slaves and early West Saxon law and the Slavic slaves um, in Eastern Europe. And not every single captive became a slave. Some were ransomed. Uh, important people were sometimes executed. But the vast majority of captives were probably enslaved. And captives probably made up the majority of the, of the slave population, apart from people who had been born into slavery. I have to say, just going back to the domestic abusers thing, I'm like, mm, I'm not totally mortified by the idea of punishing people. <laughs> I work yeah. with domestic violence victims and I'm like, I can think of a few guys where I'm like, yeah, that would, that would kind of be yours coming to you. Yeah. Well, it was that, or um, we actually know about that one because it turns up in uh, an edict by one of the Czech Dukes. And he's saying, well, we're not going to do this anymore. If you're a convicted domestic abuser, we're just going to exile you to Hungary forever. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so all the domestic abusers ended up in Hungary basically. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. There's a lot of um, debate over sort of what this means. Like, are they selling them as slaves into Hungary? Um, I think it's something more akin to exile. Yeah. Um, so, it, yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a strange situation. I guess it just depends on how you feel about living in Hungary forever. Mm. Um, you've mentioned this actually earlier, uh, a little bit about the slave trade. But where could you buy and sell slaves? Could you go into a little bit more detail on that? Yeah, um, so the short answer is basically anywhere. Um, slave trading seems to have occurred uh, wherever trade happened more generally. So places like urban markets, trading settlements, um, Viking army camps, you name it. Um, early medieval slave trading crops up most frequently in relation to urban centers, and that's probably because you have bigger populations of well-off people who were looking to buy slaves, uh, and because there's sort of a constant flow of people from the countryside and you know, merchants traveling from distant lands looking to trade. 
slave trading was kind of ongoing for as long as slavery was around, but there's a few times and places where it seems to have been more of a big deal and more significant to the economy. So during the Viking Age, there were a lot of people enslaved in Britain and Ireland and sold to places like Scandinavia or Scandinavian settlements like Iceland, where uh, there was a labor shortage. Uh, Eastern Europe was also a major slaving zone uh, in the 10th century, um, which may be where we start to get the word Slav, meaning slave. And there's a high demand for Slavic slaves, especially in the Islamic Caliphate at this point, particularly to become eunuchs. Uh, and in the later Middle Ages, slave trading was very active and very profitable around the Mediterranean uh, between places like Italian city-states and uh, the Mamluk Sultanate in Egypt. And so it's worth noting, actually, that large-scale enslavement of Black Africans also starts to get underway as early as the 8th century. And that's when you get Arab merchants after the Arab conquest of Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. You get Arab merchants penetrating south of the Sahara in Africa. And actually, the, so the only known slave revolt of the early Middle Ages, the Zandrafal, is actually fought by African slaves in Iraq. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So I, that's amazing because I'd never thought it started that early before. Is there a way to become free once you've been enslaved in the Middle, middle Ages? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in the early Middle Ages, this process is like, in many ways influenced by Roman law uh, through, via ecclesiastical law. And so it could involve a ceremony at, say, a church altar or at even a crossroads and you didn't necessarily need like paper documents. Uh, a lot of this was done kind of via word of mouth. Um, if your neighbors could vouch that you were free or had been free for so many generations, that was in many ways sufficient. Um, there were a lot of reasons that this could happen. Um, the process is called manumission, so this act of emancipation. And so it could be sort of inspired by personal reasons. So um, lords could free loyal servants as a reward or as penance for a sin, um, in such as the case where a, uh, an enslaved woman has a child by her master. Um, that one crops up in both Christian and Islamic tradition. Um, I can't really speak on uh, the motivation in Islamic law, but in Christian tradition, it's intended as a penance for extramarital sex. Um, and so manumission can also have kind of practical and spiritual connotations. 
And so in addition to this, these ideas of penance or uh, charity, you know, it's, it's a good and generous thing to free your slaves. It can also be very practically like a way of converting the kinds of labor you have on a land holding. So for example, agricultural slaves um, in their most chattel slave form require constant oversight. You have to ensure that they're productive, that they're not running away, that they're not trying to rebel. And so slave owners um, also have a lot of responsibility there. So having slaves working in your fields isn't always the most practical option uh, for you as a, as a land manager. And it's much easier for lords to make their slaves into tenants who are mostly self-sufficient, they don't require as much oversight, and they pay things like dues and labor obligations to the Lord. Um, and so this was especially popular on ecclesiastical lands where you have huge swaths of land that need to be managed. So the next question, I mean, we could probably make a whole podcast out of the next question, but because <laughs> um, it is, it is such a wide possibility of where we could go with this, but what archaeological evidence is there to support slavery in the medieval period? Well, so there's not a lot of direct one-to-one archaeological evidence of slavery. It's very difficult to kind of look at a specific object or, you know, the remains of a building and say, ah, yes, this is definitely linked to slavery. Um, This isn't just a medieval issue. It's actually a problem that occurs even in things like um, slave trading out of Africa from the 18th century. Um, Sometimes it's, you know, it's hard to look at a building and say, well, yes, slaves were found here. Um, Just as it's difficult to look at, say, medieval shackles and say, these were definitely used on slaves because our sources tell us quite clearly that they were used in a lot of different contexts. Um, You could use them for restraining criminals. Um, You could wear shackles as penance in some cases. Um, So it's a lot of guesswork and a lot of kind of um, imaginative thinking. Um, One of the the best archaeological pieces of evidence for medieval slavery that we have so far is um, a lot of silver hordes from Eastern Europe and Scandinavia, especially Gotland. Um, It's an island off the coast of the Scandinavian peninsula. And so you get massive, massive quantities of silver dirhams, which are Arab coins from the... uh, 10th century, 9th and 10th centuries. And so the current argument is that a lot of these are actually the result of slave trading with the Arab Caliphate and uh, with um, slave traders in places like Persia. Um, Because the question is, what did Europeans have to offer that was extremely valuable and readily available? Uh, And, you know, you've got things like fur and amber and honey and wax, um, but these probably couldn't result in the massive quantities of money that are just turning up on an almost daily basis. And so one good explanation for that is slaves. And that also helps explain this Slavic slave trade, which leads to our word slave. Um, There's also room to consider things like uh, 
deviant burials, you know, the, the mistreatment of people after death. But again, it's very difficult to pin these things down to what is essentially a, a legal concept. How do you identify legal status in law? You can certainly identify social status or economic status, but you know, how do you tell the difference between a poor free person and a poor unfree person? Or even say a person who was legally enslaved but still rose to become a, a very well respected member of their community or of the household that they lived in. I have to ask as well, written sources. I mean, I take it you don't find things written down by slaves, do you? Are you looking at administrative documents wholly to try and take your information? Like you've mentioned edicts and things like that. Or do you find accounts that give you amazing detailed stuff? And obviously your holy grail is going to be a diary by a slave, isn't it? <laughs> I'm guessing that doesn't happen. Oh, I wish we had. <laughs> I wish we had anything like that. Um, yeah. so there's very different kinds of sources for the early Middle Ages versus the later Middle Ages. And whether you're dealing with places, say, like, Christian Europe um, versus Islamic Europe in the Middle East. Um, there's massively different types of records. So with early medieval, say, Western Europe, uh, where you have sources produced by Christian authors, because Christianization brings literacy in this period, um, most of what you have is being written by elites about what they thought were problems with slavery. So that's how you get all of these laws about slave trading and enslavement. Um, and you don't really get the actual perspective of slaves. Um, I mean, Patrick is really uh, unique in this perspective because while he was a bishop in Ireland, he wrote what's called a confessio, which is sort of like a medieval version of an autobiography. And that actually tells us a little bit about his life as a slave. Um, but otherwise, you really only get things that are written after people had died. Um, in the cases of saints who were maybe like captured and carried into Viking slavery, like Finden, also in Ireland. Um, but for the most part, slaves are kind of just treated like these nameless, faceless people who really aren't interesting or worth the author's time getting into. Mm. Um, in early medieval Europe, we don't even have um, say, things like sale records or tax documents like you do for the early modern period or um, the later Middle Ages in the Mediterranean, where you do get that kind of archival body of sources um, and then Islamic areas, you get some really unique sources. You get travel logs by um, people who journeyed into Europe and kind of wrote about the slave trading that they witnessed there. You get people in the Middle East who are interested in the origins of their slaves. So they kind of want to explain how you know, people from Slavic Eastern Europe could end up in Baghdad. Um, and you also get this very unique genre of source material, which were slave buying guides, which actually kind of broke down which sort of ethnicity or cultural background you should look for when you are purchasing slaves of, for a specific duty. Like, so for example, um, this is where you get the stereotype that Slavic slaves make really 
good Unix. Um, that was just a popular conception amongst people writing slave buying guides. Um, there were other things that were like, oh, don't buy slaves from here because they are too aggressive. If you're looking for a pretty, you know, domestic house servant um, who, you know, you can also sexually abuse, then get a woman from here. It's all kinds of very, it's horrifying, <laughs> yeah. um, but um, provides a really unique window into people's kind of stereotypes of slavery at that time. You've mentioned a couple of times sexual abuse within slavery. How endemic is it? And oh, it just, it sounds awful, but are we talking rape and sort of if if you're so obviously you belong to them so they can do what they want to you and how how much of a cultural thing across medieval the medieval world is that yes i didn't want to i didn't know how much you wanted me to go into that sort of thing yeah no our listeners um, are pretty they're they're interested in stuff and they're pretty they can handle nastiness yeah um so it's pretty ubiquitous um yeah they're really the only time that it's considered a problem is if someone is having sex with someone else's slave, because then it becomes an issue of uh, access to property. You are using someone else's property and that's not acceptable. Um, the other time it becomes an issue is when slave women have children by their masters. Um, but that's typically only considered an ethical concern in Christian Europe. So you see it in penitentials, which were um, guidelines for confession. It kind of gave you an idea of what sort of penance you should be prescribing for which uh, sin. And so you get um, penitentials, which tell people they should free a female slave who has born a child to them. Um, whether or not that actually happened in practice is quite another story. Um, we do, like, we have an example of this in uh, another Irish saint. St. Bridget is actually the child of um, a slave woman and her slave woman's owner. So Bridget is born a slave and her mother certainly isn't freed. Um, but then you do get in Islamic law, you have the concept of the Ummulad, which is actually a slave woman who has born a son to her master. And it is a requirement of Islamic law that she is then freed or she has like this um, awaiting freedom status until her master dies and then she's officially legally freed. And so I think it was much more common in an Islamic context for that to happen. Um, but otherwise, you just get, um, you know, overwhelmingly common sexual abuse of women who are enslaved because they are property. Um, they are, their Lord has access to them whenever he wants. And that's totally fine. Um, I think the only the only time it's not fine is actually when you have um, women sexually abusing their male slaves. So it was okay for... <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it was okay. One-way totally. Sorry? It's a one-way street, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's totally fine for men to abuse their female slaves, but it's improprietous for women to abuse their male slaves. Yuck. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's what everybody's thinking right now. 
Yeah. I mean, so you just, you add on all of that brutality and abuse, and then you've got this nice thick layer of misogyny on top. (laughs) Yuck. This is what I just can't say anything else to it. It's just repulsive. (laughs) Okay, so medieval slavery disappeared, didn't it, at some point? Do we know why? Yeah. Um, So this, again, this kind of depends on where you look geographically. So like in Western Europe, slavery begins to disappear relatively early. Um, In areas of what's now France and Germany, this sort of starts to happen in the 9th and into the 10th centuries. Um, The Normans bring their forms of unfree land tenure to England and Ireland with their contexts or their conquests there. So slavery seems to be gone in England by the 12th century and in Ireland by the 13th century. Um, And it's about that time that slavery also begins to fade away in Scandinavian regions and then in Central Europe as well, because Central Europe at this point is heavily influenced by their Western neighbors. And so in other areas, though, slavery stays really prominent for the entirety of the Middle Ages. It doesn't really disappear. Um, Around the Mediterranean, especially in cities, this means that there's actually no break between late Roman slavery in the 5th century and early enslavement of Africans in the 15th century. Um, And that's in both Christian and Islamic areas. Um, I mentioned that there was uh, enslavement of sub-Saharan Africans by um, the Arab Caliphate and, you know, traders working in the Middle East. Um, These aren't, it's not a seamless transition from this sort of slave trading into transatlantic slavery, um, but it's also not entirely separate either. There is like a precedent for when African slaves start being placed on European sugar plantations. Um, And again, in Russia, even farther east, slavery actually doesn't disappear until the early modern period. I think you get slaves in Russia into the 17th century. Um, So what we think of as like the end of medieval slavery is actually for a fairly limited area of Europe and everywhere else it's just kind of this ubiquitous form of exploitation that continues up until you get the widespread enslavement of Africans and servants being used in different ways. Um, I just urge everybody to go and follow Janelle on Twitter if no other reason than to look at the most awesome profile picture I've ever seen in my life. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's brilliant. Are you writing anything at the moment? Where can people read more? Because this has been absolutely fascinating. Oh, thanks. Um, I'm actually working on a book on early medieval slave trading in Europe and I can't give you a publication date. Uh-huh. It's still like floating around in space. Yeah. But hopefully within the next two years, uh, it'll be in final form. Brilliant. Okay, so until then, uh, it is at Janelle Fontaine on Twitter. Do follow her um, so you can stay in touch and find out when that comes out. This has been brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Join us tomorrow when Zach and Marcus make their debut with their own new segment, Once a Month, we'll be bringing you Sharpshooters. Uh, They will be taking an aspect of the television programme, Sharp, or something that appears in one of the novels, and then expanding on it in a historical sense. So basically they're using uh, the series that everybody loves to break into 
educating people about the history of the period, which is really good. Um, but tomorrow they start with something a little different. We talk about Wellington after Waterloo, which is great. So Marcus fanboys and Zach keeps him in check, basically, which I think is uh, how this is going to work quite a lot of the time. So don't miss that. It's brilliant. And then in the afternoon, we have with us the legend that is Kate Jameson. So we'll be going to see in pretty much the same period because we will be talking about a real life legend of the Royal Navy and telling you all about Edward Perry, and that's Robert Lindsay in the Hornblower programmes. So don't miss that. It'd be brilliant. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join us on either of those platforms, uh, Marcus is currently working on some benefits for you. So uh, there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.